All right, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, our second reading comes from Acts of the Apostles. I'm reading uh, verse 18 through 28 in chapter 18. You can find that in your bulletins as well. Paul stayed with the believers for many days. Then he left and sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were also with him. At Sencrea, Paul cut off his hair because he had made a promise to God. Then they went to the city of Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. While Paul was in Ephesus, he went into the synagogue and talked with the Jews. They asked him to stay longer, but he refused. He left them and said, I will come back to you again if God wants me to. And so he sailed away from Ephesus. Then Paul arrived at Caesarea. He uh, he went to Jerusalem and visited the church there. After that, he went to Antioch. Paul stayed in Antioch for a while. Then he left there and went through the countries of Galatia and Phrygia. He traveled from town to town in those countries, helping all the followers of Jesus grow stronger in their faith. A Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus Born in the city of Alexandria, he was an educated man who knew the scriptures well. He had been taught about the Lord and was always excited to talk to people about Jesus. What he taught was right, but the only baptism he knew about was the baptism that John taught. Apollos began to speak very boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him speak, they took him to their home and helped him understand the way of God better. Apollos wanted to go to Achaia. So the believers in Ephesus helped him. They wrote a letter to the Lord's followers in Achaia and asked them to accept Apollos. When he arrived there, he was a great help to those who believed in Jesus because of God's grace. He argued very strongly against the Jews before all the people. He proved clearly that the Jews were wrong. He used the scriptures and showed that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you be present with us uh, this morning as we dig into your word. I pray that you would speak a word to us. I pray that you would speak across the centuries from these ancient texts and let them be alive for us this day. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today is uh, is Memorial Day. And uh, those of you who are old enough, you might remember that Memorial Day always was on May 30th. During the Nixon administration, they made it the last Monday of the month so that, you know, we could get the three-day get the three-day weekend. Apparently, the longest-running annual Memorial Day parade uh, happens in Doylestown. They've been doing it since 1868, which is a very very long time up there. Uh, The the holiday began uh, during the time after the Civil War. People remembering the war dead. It used to be called Decoration Day. They would go out to the graves and uh, place flowers on on the graves of uh, of people who had died in in that conflict. Uh, during the subsequent wars, it it was you know enlarged to embrace all who had died in service uh, uh, to the country. And so uh, we do remember those who have uh, made the ultimate sacrifice. 
Um, nobody chooses to go to war. Nobody wants to go to war. Uh, and, but those who do and those who do it in response of the call of their country put themselves in harm's way. And some of them, uh, some of them don't come home. And may we uh, remember and honor them uh, for what it is that they've done for us. Now, what I want to do in uh, our time together this morning is kind of two things. I want to walk through this passage. This is kind of a miscellaneous passage. He's come to the end of, of one section, and, and he's kind of rounding up a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and so there are a, a number of scattered thoughts that I want to uh, address uh, in this passage. But then I want to focus in uh, more carefully uh, on Paul cutting his hair. All right, so first I would just want to step through the passage, and then we're going to circle back and talk about Paul cutting his hair. Now, apparently I've been leading you astray for a while now, uh, because I said that we're in the third missionary journey. Apparently the scholars call this the second missionary journey. I was thinking that the second had ended uh, at, at Athens, and that the Corinth was the beginning of the third. But uh, the way the, the scholars group this together is that the that the trip to Corinth is actually the continuation of the second, and we don't start the third until Paul gets back to home base, okay? Some of you already knew that, and you should have corrected me before, but I figured it out on my own. Thank you very much. Okay, so Paul Paul has been in in Corinth a long time, okay? So in the other, other cities that he visited, he kind of is making a whirlwind tour, passing through, preaching, arguing for a while in the synagogue, and then moving on. Maybe maybe a month in each place. But in Corinth, he, he's there fully 18 months, maybe longer than uh, 18 months, uh, depending on how uh, you uh, how you read the passage. But the time comes when he's he's done. He's ready. He's ready to move on, and he wants to leave for Syria, which is sort of where he had started. Okay. So Paul Paul heads out on on this journey from Antioch in Syria, and ultimately he's going to get back to uh, to the starting point. And so he leaves the city of Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. We met them last week. They're Jews who had been expelled from Rome. They're Christian Jews, and they're living there in Corinth. And Paul's going to be traveling with them. They end up being very important in his ministry uh, going forward. So Paul leaves. Corinth, which is part of Greece. It's the part of Greece that hangs down like the cow udder there. And he sails from, from uh, Achaia over to the coast of Turkey and he lands at the city of, of Ephesus. And the people at Ephesus are apparently are rather taken with Paul. He's preaching and he's teaching there for a while in the synagogue. They want him to stay. He doesn't want to stay. I think he's, I think he's eager to get home. I mean, he's been on the road a long time and, and there comes a point when you just want to be amongst your own people and speak your home language and eat your home food. Okay. And so he says, I, I'm not going to stay here, but if God calls me back, I'll come back. And so from Ephesus, he then sails all all the way down to Caesarea, which is a port there uh, in Palestine, a long journey by sea. And then from that port, he then heads uh, up up country uh, to, to Jerusalem. He checks in with, with the church, he checks in with the apostles who were there in, in the church. And then from Jerusalem, he goes to Antioch, which was his starting point. 
Alright? So this is his, his home place. And then after that, he seems to take a little, uh, I don't know, a little excursion in Galatia and Phrygia. This, these are places that he had been before. He's visiting churches that he's planted before. So, you know, Paul, uh, in these two missionary journeys has planted a lot of churches and he's probably wondering about them. He's going to stop in on them again and see what's going on there. And so he travels from town to town. Uh, and as the scripture says, helping all the followers of Jesus to grow stronger in their faith. Okay, they've received the faith, but that's not the end of the story. I mean, it's wonderful that they have the faith. That's great, but let's grow stronger in the faith. And then there's this kind of coda tagged on here about Apollos at Ephesus and at Corinth. Now, we're going to meet Apollos later. Those of you who uh, have been with the uh, men's uh, prayer breakfast, we've been, we we read through uh, first, well, well, we're still working in first Corinthians, and in first Corinthians, there's a lot of talk about this fellow, Apollos. He's a very educated man. He's from North Africa. He's Jewish. He somehow has come into the faith. We're not exactly sure. Uh, he doesn't know the whole story. So he knows about the baptism of John, but he doesn't know about Christian baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's a man full of zeal, but he doesn't have full knowledge. And so the brothers and the sisters kind of embrace him and encourage him and teach him a little bit more. So Priscilla and Aquila bring him home where he is more fully trained in the, in the teaching of the apostles. He then wants to go where Paul had been to Achaia. And so he gets the uh, people in Ephesus to send him across the sea and send him with a letter, kind of a letter of introduction. And he, so he goes back to Corinth, he goes to Corinth where Paul has, has left from and he begins, uh, to teach and to preach there in that church that, that Paul, um, uh, has established over the course of 18 months. The final sentence of our reading this morning deserves at least a little bit of our attention because it really is the model for Christian preaching. It is the model for what it is that needs to be going on in the pulpits of our churches. And it, it simply reads this way. He, Apollos, used the scriptures... And showed that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the job of the church. Okay. The job of the church is to use the scriptures to show that people, show to people that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we need to understand who the Messiah is. We need to understand what the Messiah does for us. But the teaching of the church has to be based upon the scriptures and not upon the wisdom or the ideas of the pastor. Apollos isn't preaching Apollos, Apollos is preaching the scriptures, which we have already learned that he's been very well schooled in, all right? And so Paul had already uh, 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 shown that that same model uh, of preaching uh, in, in earlier in, the, in, in his uh, missionary journeys, but here we see it again with this kind of this next generation uh, apostle who's come along, this next generation evangelist who, who has come along. So 
that's just a kind of a quick survey of this, of a lot of things that are happening here at the end of that chapter. It's a kind of a miscellany, um, and I just wanted to touch on those things so that you get the historical details uh, down. We will meet Apollos, as I said, um, more fully if we go uh, into 1 Corinthians uh, at some point. But I, what I want to talk about uh, this morning is this rather curious verse, and I don't know if it if it struck you as, as funny, uh, at Sincrea, Paul cut off his hair because he had made a promise to God or because he had made a vow to God. Paul cut off his hair. Now, our first reading, which John made us stand for, by the way, in the late service, last time we got together, Jordan Goretti had us all stand, okay, which was, you know, a sign of respect for the reading of the, of the scriptures of God. Uh, and I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that. Um, and by the way, if you ever come to the Portuguese service that meets here this, this evening at six o'clock, I will be preaching this evening. That is their custom there as well. Whenever the scriptures are read, everybody stands in the presence of, of the word of God. But let's take a look at the, uh, Paul cutting off his hair. So our first reading this morning that John gave for us, uh, in our first reading this morning, uh, we learn about the, what's called a Nazarite vow. Alright? So there's this whole, and there are all of these rules, uh, surrounding the Nazarite vow, and, and I actually cut out some of them. I, I thought it, the reading was actually very long, but we, cut out a whole chunk in there, but there would be these times when people would dedicate themselves to the Lord for a certain period of time, okay, and they would take some kind of special vow, it was called a Nazarite vow, uh, and this was an optional thing, it wasn't required of them, it wasn't part of the law that said, oh, you have to have a Nazarite vow, it's, it's something over and above what is what is minimally required. Now, as followers of Christ, we are inheritors of the law, and part of that law is the tithe and the Sabbath, which are a portion of our lives and our income that are dedicated to God, to the work of the kingdom. It's, it's a, it's a sign of our complete dedication to God. I mean, we, we give a portion, we give one day of a week, we give one tenth of our income as a, as a indication to God that we're giving Him the first and the best of what we have. Okay? That's, that's what the law says. Now with the Nazarite vow, there is something above this. There's something above the uh, the Sabbath uh, principle, something above the tithing principle. Uh, if you wanted to take a look uh, in our first reading this morning, uh, you have it there in front of you. This, this is at verse 8. It is holy because you have given yourself fully to the Lord for the full time of the dedication. Okay, so fully to the Lord for this time that you, you've dedicated. Now, as part of our normal lives, as people of God, we are setting aside the first fruit. We're setting aside the first day. That belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. We're setting aside the first fruit of our income. That, that's the tithe. That belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. The other, the other days of the week are ours to work and to play and to do as we please. And the other money that we have, uh, we use in any way we see fit. Um, but we give a portion. 
as a sign of our commitment to God. But the Nazarite, during the period of the Nazarite vow, gives his whole self to God for all of the days of that period. Okay, So it's a different kind of relationship uh, with the Almighty. All right, Now there's nothing wrong with the more modest, minimal tithing and Sabbath principle relationship with God. God requires that. He understands uh, that, that, that that is minimally required of us. But sometimes in the lives of people of God, they want to make a fuller immersion into their commitment to God. And they take this vow, they take this Nazarite, this Nazarite vow, okay? They dedicate their whole lives for the whole time um, and develop this kind of deeper, deeper commitment for, for this period, all right? Now, you may have noticed that at the beginning of your relationships, maybe your romantic relationships or maybe your relationship with Jesus, when when that relationship began, it was rather intense. When you were courting your spouse, you probably tried to spend all of your energy and all of your time with that individual. That that's they were all consuming. All right. During the period of courtship, well, then there comes the period of you know you kind of settle into real life and you realize you can't actually spend all of your time with this this person you love. You need to set aside some kind of uh, uh, some kind of first fruit for them. You need to set aside some uh, assigned time for them to maintain the relationship. But the intensity of that relationship cannot be sustained over the long haul. All right. That's the the romance period. And then there comes the kind of the more ordinary period, more ordinary time where, where we, you know, we have a date night with our, with our wives. We set aside some time. We make sure that we, we get, we get time with our, with our spouses. Those of you who remember coming to Jesus may remember of a time of very intense commitment. When you couldn't wait to be spending time with him, when, when you were distracted from your work because you were thinking about, oh, I'm going to be able to get home to be able to read the scriptures. Uh, there is that intense time at the beginning of relationships, but then as time goes on, we settle into ordinary life and sometimes the passions will cool. Sometimes the passions cool in marriages. Maybe because we're not setting up that rhythmic date night. Maybe because we're not setting up, setting aside an appropriate amount of time to maintain the relationship. Sometimes people uh, come into in, into their faith and into their into their born again status with great great passion, and then it cools over time. You know, they begin to take it for granted. Well, I got you know, I'm straight with Jesus. I don't have to get so crazy about this anymore, and things begin to cool off. Now, here's what I want to say about passion. We welcome passion as Christians. Okay? We, we welcome it. It is appropriate to be passionate about God, but we do not depend upon passion. Faith is what carries us even when the passion isn't there. Faithfulness to what it is that God has instructed us to do carries us even when the passion isn't there. There's no reason not to uh, desire the passion or to inflame the passion. But if the passion isn't there, the relationship needs to remain intact. 
All right. There are some Christians who are addicted to, to the passion. And if the passion wanes, they think, oh, well, maybe I've lost my faith and maybe I'm no longer part of Christ. Right. There will be times of coolness in your faith over time. I do think that we need to attend to our relationship with Jesus. We need to make sure that it isn't cooling. We need to blow on the flames of passion. Faith is what will keep that steady. All right. All right. So there are times of heat and times of coolness in our relationships. And every once in a while, there comes a time where, you know, maybe we need to just to re-up and recommit to this relationship. We've done uh, in this church a number of uh, renewals of wedding vows. I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Okay. When, 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 um, What's that day? Valentine's Day lands on, when Valentine's Day lands on Sunday, we, we do a renewal of vows here. Okay? Because those vows are important. Now maybe when you started your marriage, things were really warm, and then they cool off over time. And sometimes a recommitment to those vows can be exactly what's called for. The other thing I would say about recommitment, whether it's to your marriage vows or to other commitments in your life or or recommitting yourself to Christ, is, is that actually your recommitment is probably more open-eyed and more mature than your initial commitment. All right? We get married in a heat of passion. We get married with rose-colored glasses. And then we live with the person and, and, and we, and they realize our flaws. Okay. And so when we recommit to that relationship, we are recommitting to a relationship and recognizing that, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I'm still going to recommit. I'm going to recommit to that, to that relationship in the Christian life. You know, if you live the Christian life for a while, you're going to discover a number of things. One thing is you're going to discover that Christians are sometimes hard to live with. Okay? And the Christian life, by the way, happens in community. It happens right here. And some of the people in this room, you know, are prickly characters. And so your Christian life, it's not all sweetness. It's got some thorns to it. All right? Maybe you didn't know that coming in. Maybe you joined and thought, you know, this is great. Everybody here is perfect. You know, I finally found a place that's just as good as me. I'm ready to, I'm, I'm, I'm signing up. And then you discover, oh no, actually they're as bad as you. Alright? And so when you recommit to that, it's actually a more mature commitment, a more open-eyed commitment. I think these Nazarite vows, now we don't know everything about them, but I think these Nazarite vows are Recommitments for a defined period of time. For this time, I am going to set aside and I'm going to be totally committed to the work of God. I'm not going to be doing other things. I'm not going to be working on other projects. All right. Now, Paul seems to me to be a rather full-time Christian. And so, uh, to me, it's it's surprising that this guy who, you know, doesn't have a wife or children, who's on the road for Jesus, is taking a Nazarite vow. But even in the life of this mature Christian, he sees that he can up his game. That, you know, there still are some things that he has not put on the altar for Jesus. 
All right? We hold ourselves back. We give Jesus a little bit. And we hold hold ourselves back. Now, be be clear about this, that, you know, that the principle of the Sabbath and the principle of the tithe indicate that that may be appropriate in everyday life. That you don't have to be in church every you know, every day of the week, right? That you don't have to be thinking uh, about the things of God every moment of, of that you're awake. But you do need to, you know, set aside that part. But during this time of, of the Nazarite vow, there is a recommitment and, a, a, and, and an engaged focus on the things of God for a defined period. Alright? So they would make these vows, and then they wouldn't cut their hair, and they wouldn't drink any booze the whole time. Uh, you know, we can think about w- w- what that all means. Uh, I, th- I think that the, uh, I think that the hair thing has to do with, well, partly it's an external sign of your commitment. Why is he growing his hair out? What's he doing? Well, you know, he's taking a Nazarite vow. It's a way of kind of being out of the closet about your commitment to Christ. I mean, I don't know what kind of signs that we have in our culture anymore that would indicate to the world, you know, this is a person who is fully committed to God. People in the Catholic Church, you know, who become nuns and priests, they, you know, they wear special garments that signal to the world what, what their role is, that they are religious, that they're religious people, and maybe that's a rough equivalent. I don't know what we have in our culture, but this not cutting of the hair was some sign to the world that this person is on a mission for God. Alright? And respect them for that. We don't, we don't know what necessarily what what their promise to God is, but during this time they're doing something special for God. And so it's a reminder to the world. I think it's also a reminder to themselves because every morning they wake up and their hair is like a little nasty and natty and a little uncomfortable and they really would like to go to the hairdresser and get this thing taken care of. But it's a reminder that, you know, I've actually made, I've made this promise. And then the booze, well, you know, alcohol is, is a way of, taking us on a little vacation. Alcohol is a way of relaxing our mind and our brain. Uh, And I think that during this Nazarite vow, these people were rather focused. Okay. And so there was no, there was no time for, uh, uh, for getting drunk going on there. And so Paul takes this vow. He doesn't tell us what the vow is, but he takes this vow and, and, he does this. Now, one of the things that I want to clarify about this, well, a couple of things. Well, first of all, I want to say that because Paul did it, it is legitimate for you to do it. Okay? You're permitted to do it. You're not required to do it. Okay? It's a permission thing. Because Paul did it, because we see his example in Scripture, we know that it's permissible for us to make these kinds of vows, these, these kind of special commitments for a certain period to be just attending to the work of God. That's the first thing I want to say. But the second thing I want us to make sure that we understand is that is this distinction between justification and sanctification. Okay, because sometimes we we get this idea that, you know, we're all right with God because we're working so hard at it. So justification is what happens to us the moment we're born again. 
Justification is when God, in a sovereign act of God, because he's the king and because he can do whatever he wants to do, he declares that you're righteous. I mean, we know that you're not really righteous, but he declares that you're righteous. And in the eyes of the law, you're going to be righteous. He declares you're righteous, you're born again. It's a one-time event. It's instantaneous. The moment that you're justified, the moment that you're born again, your legal status before God changes. You go from being someone who's on the road to hell to someone who's on the road to heaven. Okay? That's, it's an instantaneous change. It happens in a moment and it happens when we believe. Remember that. The second thing I want to say is, is that after we've been justified, after we've believed, after we've been born again, starts the process of sanctification. Now, unlike justification, sanctification is slow. Takes your whole life. It's a little bit at a time, a little bit now. And little bit by little bit, we become more and more like Christ. Okay, justification is God simply declaring you born again, redeemed, your sins are forgiven. Sanctification is when you begin to actually live into that stuff. And it's a gradual process. It's a matter of Christian maturity. It's an ongoing process. It's a lifelong process. And guess what? It doesn't stop until the day Jesus comes. Now, the day Jesus comes, sanctification is over. We'll be fully glorified. All right? Justification happens in one moment. That's the beginning of your Christian life. After that starts, you've got the whole period of sanctification. Every day of your life, you should be, you should be becoming a little more like Jesus. And then when Jesus returns, in, in a moment, you're gonna be glorified. You're gonna receive a body, uh, and a spirit like Christ Himself. Alright? Now, the sanctification happens when we obey. Justification happens when we believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, okay? Sanctification happens when we obey. The problem is, is that we have some people who believe but don't obey. We have some people who believe in Jesus but aren't obeying Jesus or following Jesus or committing themselves to Jesus, all right? So... I want to warn about that and I want to lift that up to your attention because when genuine conversion happens, the obedience does follow. To be saved is not merely to believe certain facts about Jesus because, you know, Satan believes those facts too. Satan understands Jesus better than we do. But to be saved is also involves some kind of commitment which will, which will Produce obedience. Romans 1, 5. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. God gave me the special work of an apostle to lead people of all nations to believe. That's the justification. That's getting born again. To believe and to obey him. Okay, that's the Christian discipline. That's that lifelong discipleship. That's that sanctification. Okay? Now, why the vows? I think vows are involved in this because sometimes vows help us with our obedience. I take a vow, I take a solemn oath before God, before others, to do this, that, and the other. That 
helps me to do the things that, in fact, I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm committed to. The fact that I've said them out loud and said them in front of other people helps me to do the thing that I actually want to do. I, I, I want to live this way. But I stand up before other people and I make that kind of public commitment and and I think that helps us. I think that's why these Nazarite vows make sense. That's why the Nazarite vow is visible, okay, in the hair. So yesterday, I think it was yesterday, recently, I took Mia over to one of her friend's house in, in the neighborhood. And, you know, we knock on the door and, you know, a, li- a little kid like opens the door. And so I step inside and the mom sees me and then immediately begins scurrying around cleaning up stuff. Okay. She's a little embarrassed. Okay. Somebody, the dad of this kid showed up in her house and there's like junk all over the floor. Now, I didn't notice. I mean, it, it wasn't bothering me, but we clean up when people are coming to our house, partly as a sign of respect and honor. You know, when our houses are clean, it's a way that we say, I think that you're an important person. You know, if, if the Queen of England were coming to your house, you'd make it spick and span. All right. Partly it's a sign of honor, but partly it's a sign of, um, I, I, I want to present myself in the best way possible. I want to present the best me possible. Okay, and in my best moments, I do actually clean stuff. All right, I think that's that's what's going on there. It raises in my mind the question of what kind of scurrying around are we going to do when Jesus shows up? Okay, because he's going to show up. We don't know when, but one day Jesus is going to show up. Whole world's going to see him all at the same time. Are we going to be scurrying around cleaning up the mess of our lives? Are the things that we're doing right now that we hope we're not doing when he shows up? <laughs> Do we hope he shows up on Sunday morning so he finds us in our pew? That would be nice, right? Do, do we have things going on in our lives that we need to clean up? And would a Nazarite vow Help us. One of the interesting things that's been going on in the Stogie Society is that for about the last, I don't know, couple months, this uh, army chaplain has been running the group. And he's, he's got, he's got like a system, okay? He's from the army. And he's got, he's got this system that he uses and we're, you know, he's trying to whip us into shape and uh, we're trying to learn his system. But, uh, one of the parts of the system is that at the end of the Bible study, so we read some passage of scripture and, and, you know, we ask some different questions about it. But at the end, uh, at the end of the Bible study, everybody in the group makes a commitment. It's not as big a deal as a Nazarite vow, but it's kind of like a little Nazarite vow. They make a commitment. You know what? In the course of these next two weeks, I'm going to help my wife do the dishes at least four times a week. This is the kind of stuff these guys say. Okay? All right? Now here's the Nazarite part. Then when you come back, two weeks later, he's got his little checklist. So, 
Brother Steve, how'd that go? <laughs> and you got to tell the truth. Like, you're not going to lie, right? And you got to tell the truth. That little bit of accountability is very helpful in our own sanctification. All of the things that these guys say that they want to do. So you have to make the I will statement. All of the I will statements are really about uh, what these guys want to do in their deepest heart. It, it, it's who they want to be. All right. And sometimes becoming the people that we actually want to be is hard and we need other people to help us. And sometimes making a vow is the way to do that. Sometimes having an accountability partner is the way to do that. I think the Nazarite vow in some sense was a public accountability system. Now the way it worked, by the way, is after you came to the end of the period, then you you had to go to the temple and you'd get your head shaved off and then your hair would then be burnt in, in the, in the fire at the altar. Okay. So the, the cutting of the hair is at the end of the vow. So at the beginning of it, you, you know, your hair is whatever it is and, and then you stop cutting it. And then at the end, you, you give, you give, um, your hair to God. That's this sign. I must smell bad, right? But they, they would burn the hair and up it would go. Now, everybody who's a member of this church took vows. I don't know if you remember them. Uh, when you joined the church, there's a series of five vows that that we all take. Um, and I, I think we're just going to do a renewal of vows this morning. I don't think any of you have changed your opinion about these things that you said before. Uh, but I want, I just want... To remind you of what it is that, that we promised when we joined this fellowship of sinners. Uh, and let it just ring in our ears. Okay? That's what we're going to do right now. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you these, these vows. Uh, and I will give you the appropriate response. The first one is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? This is a way of saying, I understand that I have a problem and if I don't have Jesus, I don't have a solution. Okay, So nobody becomes a Christian unless they realize that they've got a problem. So do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except in his sovereign mercy? If so, please say, I do. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon Him alone for your salvation? If so, please say, I do. Do you now promise and resolve? By the way, what you just did there is all that's required for your justification. Okay, That's recognizing your status and believing that Jesus is your Savior. That's... That's what justifies you. That's what it means to be born again. But the vows don't stop there because after we've been born again, we're then grafted into a congregation, into a church where we live out our Christian life. And this begins in in number three. Do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of God, uh, the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? And what that means is that you're going to live the way a Christian should live. Okay, so it's one thing to say that I believe in Jesus. It's another thing to say I believe in Jesus and I intend to live like a Christian. If so, please say I do. do. 
Do you now promise to serve Christ in His church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and in its ministries to others to the best of your ability? If so, please say, I do. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and to the spiritual oversight of this session? If so, please say, I do. You may be seated. Thanks for standing up. There's a lot of standing up. I, <laughs> I didn't make you stand up for my reading, by the way, but I may next time. I think it's important for us to recognize that our Christian lives unfold over time and that these vows might be uh, a way to keep us moving forward. Let us uh, pray to God now. Father God, we honor you and adore you, and we thank you for saving us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and allow us to, to live the way that you want us to live in the way that, well, the way that we want to live too, Lord. I pray that you would make us into the Christians that we, that we desire to be. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified by all that we do and think and say. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.